Good morning, everyone. That's not bad. Well, it's the first Sunday of Advent. Merry Christmas. Well, that was lousy. Merry Christmas. There you go. That's it. Wake up, everybody. Wake up. want to welcome everybody that is here, and there are many watching online, as it is, does seem to be flu season and COVID season and all these types of seasons, but there are many tuned in online, especially those up in Labrador. I got a text from Robert Forsey, and so the good folks up at Northern Cross Community Church have tuned in, so welcome to you, Brother Robert, and to the congregation that's there with you. I want to welcome our special guests over here to this side. We have a number of folks that are visiting from the Sudan that have just moved here, so a warm welcome to all of you, and thank you for being with us this morning. It's good to have all of you. Paul has just read from Revelation chapter 3. It's a bit of a bizarre passage of Scripture to kick off the Christmas season, I admit, but I actually think it's timely. I think it's a great way to end this particular series as we kick off Christmas, and I hope that your Bibles are turned to Revelation chapter 3, so hopefully we'll bring all this together to launch our Christmas season together. The Danish poet Hans Christian Andersen wrote an incredible fairy tale that Walt Disney grabbed a hold of back a number of decades ago. It's about an emperor who cares too much about clothes. And so he hires two men, they turn out to be swindlers, who promise him the finest suit of clothes from the most beautiful cloth. This cloth, they tell him, is invisible to anyone who is either stupid or not fit for his position. The emperor is nervous about not being able to see the cloth himself, so he sends his ministers to view it, and they say nothing and yet praise this incredible transparent cloth. And when the swindlers report a suit of clothes has been fashioned, the emperor allows himself to be dressed in their creation for a procession through town. And during the course of the procession, While people either politely clap or ooh and ah, finally a small child cries out, but mommy, the emperor has nothing on. The crowd realizes the child is telling the truth and they all begin laughing. The emperor, however, holds his head eye and continues the procession. This emperor had unwittingly hired these two swindlers to create him a new set of clothes. And yet, the emperor's new clothes was no clothes at all. To be truthful with you all this morning, this is the most fitting way to describe the church of Laodicea. It is a church who thought they had the best of everything. They were sure of their own abilities to do it. This was a church that was debt-free, They were a wonderful congregation. It was a very beautiful upper middle class to upper class. They had doctors and business people and bankers and merchants. Yes, this church was indeed very well off. Paul has just read the words of this letter, but I want you to remember again, Jesus said, you say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing but you don't realize that you are wretched, miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. So God then says to them, if I advise you, I counsel you to buy gold from me. Calvary Baptist family and those of you that are tuned in online, I want you to remember this. 
Laodicea was a church in a city that was self-sufficient. And yet, it stood out for no reason. Let me give you a background on Laodicea. It was named after Antiochus' wife, Laodice. Laodicea was well off in three areas, not surprisingly based on the letter. It was known for its banking institutions. It was known for its medical institutions. And it was also known, probably the most famous, for the manufacturing of a bright, glossy, black wool. When this city was founded in the third century in AD 60, it was destroyed by an earthquake and actually rebuilt itself from its own coffers with no help from Rome. Really, Laodicea, while still pagan and wrapped up in emperor worship and their favorite god, no, not a surprise, was Zeus, but really, if you wanted to summarize the church of Laodicea and the city of Laodicea, it was this. They were really in love with money. Ta-da! Is that not our culture today? Now you know why I think this is a very fitting sermon as we kick off Christmas when more people will spend more money that they don't have to buy things they don't need so they can feel good for just a few fleeting moments, hopefully on Christmas morning, only to barrel into January when we as a continent experience the highest level of depression and anxiety in all the year. It's funny the dollar ruled in Laodicea, as did looking out for number one. This city, like Philadelphia before it, was supposed to be a missions city, spreading the culture and the language to the east. But unlike Philadelphia, Laodicea was internal. It swallowed up people, money, and things. It was a city that conformed to anything if it meant furthering their ability to be prosperous. Does any of this sound familiar? I could name just about any city in Canada or the United States. They said they believed in all kinds of stuff, but their actions said they believed in only one thing, them. So I want us to take a look at this last letter of seven, and I've titled my sermon that the hope of the gospel is the only thing that will keep us from self-delusion. Calvary and those of you that are online, for all of its wealth in Laodicea, this, because it was so wealthy, it did attract Rome's attention. And I want you to know this little piece of information because I want you to save it in your minds till we get to the very end of the sermon. You see, Laodicea was actually abused by its Roman overlords. Colin Hammer writes, the people were subjected to the insults of the soldiery that were billeted upon them to whom their hosts were compelled to pay a daily sum. So a Roman soldier was able to go to Laodicea and they could demand the citizens billet them and then they could set the price that those people would have to pay them and feed them. They had to provide a dinner or a diaphanon, as, as what it was said in, in Latin, for the soldiers and their guests. Really, if you want to summarize it, Laodicea had bad water, Big banks, stylish garments, eye doctors, people demanding supper from them. And Jesus comes in this letter in Revelation chapter 3, and he speaks to them just as they are, and he speaks to the needs that they really have. 
Laodicea, it seems by their affluence that that affluence had crept into the church. And here was the number one problem of the church of Laodicea, and it might very well be the number one problem of the church of Canada, which is this, self-reliance. I got this. I can handle it. Given the enormous affluence of our own culture, we need to today in 2022, as we enter into December in this coming week, hear what Jesus has to say to this church and to us. We need to be shown now more than ever that the wealth of our culture does not and will not meet our deepest needs. Jesus calls the church in Laodicea, and Jesus today calls Calvary Baptist Church to rely on Him rather than resources that we might have. And this is so important. So let's walk through this letter this morning. Let's look again at verse 14 when He says, And the angel to the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I want you to realize that it's a dynamic, living, powerful Jesus that addresses this very self-secure, self-sufficient, albeit self-deluded church. James Hamilton says, the letter to the church in Laodicea is the only one of the seven in which Jesus uses this phrase. And if you write in your Bibles, I want you to underline it. I counsel you. He doesn't say it to any other church, only to the church of Laodicea in verse 18 of chapter 3. Hamilton goes on to say in this letter, Jesus introduces himself to the church as the amen, the faithful and true witness. And in this letter then, the faithful and true witness says, I offer counsel. So if so facto, his counsel can be trusted. So even before we jump into this letter, as we're ending November and heading into December, as we see flu season flourishing and still lots of fear around COVID, as we see parliamentary committees wrapping up and conspiracy theories are rampant, when we see uh, finding, trying to buy ourselves into happiness, may I ask probably the most obvious question that one can ask on a Sunday morning in a church in St. John's, Newfoundland. Are you, am I, are we trusting Jesus? Are we trusting Jesus? And if we are not trusting Jesus, then let me ask you this. Is it because you're trusting some other counsel instead? Look again at our passage. He says, I am the amen. What it means is he is the final word. He is the Father's, God the Father's fullest amen to God people's deepest needs. He is the end of revelation. This is actually taken from Isaiah, the prophet, in Isaiah 65, verse 16, where Isaiah says that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he that swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. Amen is a Greek word which means the acknowledgement of that which is sure and valid. So when you and I, when we say, in Jesus' name, 
Amen. We're, we're actually saying, we are acknowledging that in Jesus' name, he is the sure and valid Jesus. That's why Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. And so maybe you're here this morning, like me, and we need to be reminded that Jesus is telling this church in this city, just as, I am, just as I am the amen in God, then the following that through to its logical conclusion means then you as Christians, you as a daughter of God, you as a son of God are called to be little amens of my example. Now it's getting serious. Because the amen, the final word, is also the pure truth. He will not dilute the truth. He'll not distort the truth. God deals with the facts. So the one who is the final word, who is the pure, truthful word, can then say he is in control. His apostle John wrote in John chapter 1 verse 3 that Jesus Christ is the origin of of God's creation. But if you have a minute, go with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. If you've been following along in our monthly reading, we've been reading Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And in Colossians chapter 1, you have, I think, some of the strongest sentences about the preeminence and power and control of Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. Paul, writing to the church at Colossae, which is relevant to the church of Laodicea, and you'll see it in a minute, he says, he, Christ, has delivered us from the dominion of darkness, and done what? Transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So this is who Jesus is. Now watch what he's done. See his preeminence, his power. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Then he just keeps piling on the superlatives. And he, Christ, is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's another way of saying in everything, God, Jesus, is in control. And so as Jesus is the God who obeys perfectly. He never lies. He knows everything. He's always faithful. He is the ruler of all creation. So, then Jesus is to be heard and obeyed. And may I submit that even in this church, because I don't want us to be proud and think that we're talking about other churches, here in this church, one of the biggest problems in our church is that God is too small. God is too small. How big and how powerful is God to you? I have a 
Ratatouille moment when I go back to my Sunday school days when I was taught, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. I read this morning that it says, children under five laugh 40 times a day, and adults over 40 average laughter three times a day. Is it any wonder that as adults, God seems to get smaller, not bigger? Is it any wonder how often the Bible and Jesus said to be like little children? Little children who see God as big and powerful, who can do the impossible. So Laodicea, the, 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 the solution to their self-delusion was not theology, it wasn't orthodoxy, it was rather get your eyes off yourself and get them on Christ. They saw themselves as rich spiritually. Tatticus, the Roman historian, wrote this about the city of Laodicea. He said, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us, and that's exactly how the church felt. I want you to realize that we should look to what Jesus says next in verse 17 if we're going to understand what exactly the Laodicean lukewarmness looks like. Because he says, I would that you were hot or cold, but you're neither hot nor cold, and therefore I'm going to spew you out. Remember I said earlier, Laodicea was known for bad water. Now, this passage of all the passages, both because of this verse and the next verse coming in 19 and 20 with the whole, behold, I stand at the door and knock, could rank up there as some of the most butchered passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. When I grew up, I heard, God wants you to be on fire for Jesus and all hot for Jesus, or at least be cold and carnal, and, and con- but just don't be lukewarm. And I remember growing up going, that, that don't make sense to me. But our Bible is filled with geographical references. Our Bible is actually like one big giant flannel graph of illustration. Laodicea was smack dab in the middle of two cities. One was called Colossae, and one was called Hierapolis. Colossae was known for their cool water. The water came deep out of the ground, and they were known for, it was some of the purest, tastiest cold water in all of Asia. Hierapolis was known for their hot springs. They were uh, very medicinal. Everyone loved to go and soak in the hot springs of Hierapolis. Laodicea didn't have any natural water. So both the cities created aqueduct systems where they piped water from Colossae and Hierapolis to Laodicea, but they did it in an open-ear aqueduct. So it was just a half bowl, and the water traveled under the sunlight in both directions, and it was limestone. So what happens is by the time the water from Colossae got to Laodicea, it had warmed up to lukewarm ambient outside temperature. And by the time the hot spring water from Hierapolis had been piped down to Laodicea, it had cooled off to ambient outside temperature. And then coupled with that, it had traveled along the limestone. And so it was actually a cliche in Laodicea. You could tell how someone wasn't from there because the first time they took a sip of water, they'd spit it out. So this wasn't Jesus just making stuff up. He used an illustration that everybody in the church understood. 
And this is why Jesus says, for you say, I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. What is Jesus saying? The problem of lukewarmness had to do with a deceptive sense of self-sufficiency. It wasn't about, are you on fire for Jesus or are you cold for Jesus? The idea was, you think you're just okay with Jesus and you're not. You're not okay. The Laodiceans were unaware of their true condition. Can you imagine what it would be like to say to someone, you are wretched and pitiable and poor, blind and naked? That doesn't sound like the words of love that most people want to come to pastors and shepherds and find counsel. This church thought they had no needs. In their unguarded moments, they thought, we're fine. We'll handle it. We've got it under control. We'll figure out a way. So let me ask you, in your unguarded moments, are you guilty of the same? Am I? Oh, we can talk about our stresses and our anxieties and our, and our worries and all these things, but the reality is most of St. John's still gets up tomorrow morning and goes, all right, I'm going to give it another go. I think I can do this. The power of positive thinking still reigns in our society. Does it reign in our churches as well? You are wretched and miserable and poor, blind and naked. <laughs> can you feel the love in that when Jesus writes that? Really what Jesus is saying that in their poorness and their blindness and their nakedness, they are wretched and miserable. Too many times Christians act just like the criminals from those shows. Remember the cop shows? Remember? Bad boys, bad boys. Watch you. Have you ever, I've never seen them catch a guilty one. Everybody says they're innocent. Everybody says you got the wrong man. It's not me. A number of years ago, Norman Cousins wrote an editorial in Saturday Review in which he reported a conversation he had on a trip to India. He was talking with a Hindu priest named Satis Prasad. The man said he wanted to come to America to work as a missionary among the Americans. Cousins assumed that he meant that he wanted to convert Americans to the Hindu religion. But when asked, Prasad said, oh no. I would like to convert them to be to the Christian religion. Cousins perplexed said, what do you mean? Of which Prasad said, Christianity cannot survive in the abstract. It needs not membership, but believers. The people of your country may claim they believe in Christianity, but from what I read at this distance, Christianity is more of a custom than anything else. Ouch. I would ask that you either accept the teachings of Jesus in your everyday life and in your affairs as a nation or stop evoking his name as sanction for everything you do. I want to help save Christianity from the Christians. Can I ask us all this morning as we head into Christmas, what does it take to knock Jesus off the throne of your life? Sports, dare I say it, the World Cup, 
family? Is blood thicker than water? Is blood thicker than Christianity for you? Money? Love? My friends? Church, you need to realize if we have taken Jesus to be ours and then we allow other things and other people to be Lord of our lives, then don't kid yourself. You have kicked Christ off the throne and you've put yourself there. And this church thought just like the city of Laodicea itself. We're rich. We're well clothed. We're able to see well. And yet here is Jesus saying, you're blind just like the emperor and his invisible clothes. This church was naked before God. Too many churches in our country think they're doing well. I know the church right now today in our country who gives over $100,000 a year to missions and brags about it because every time I'm near them, someone tells me, but I already know that the leadership in that church can't stand each other. What needs do you feel the most? Perhaps you recognize your need for the gospel and you embrace Jesus as your hope on the last day. But here's the problem. See, many of you, if I said this, you go, I I know I need Jesus and and I know I needed to confess my sins and I know Jesus, but the problem is, is that when you then start living your everyday life in your everyday marriages, in your everyday families, in your everyday churches, and we think about the sins that we struggle with, and let's be honest, every single one of us in this room is struggling with sin. Somehow we think about what we can do rather than what Jesus has done. And that's the problem. We need Jesus to stand against temptation just as much as we needed him to stand before God and pay for our sin and as much as we need him to one day stand before God at the last judgment. Perhaps Jesus claimed that these Laodiceans were wretched and pitiful and poor, blind, and naked is shocking to us, but perhaps you're a person who hasn't thought much about your physical life. Again, James McDonald says, Have you wrestled with the idea that you could have everything and yet have nothing? Have you noticed? Now watch this now, and I'm going to alter this quote just a little bit to make it uh, relevant to Canada. But have you noticed that the wealthiest nation in the world, statistically, is the USA? The U.S. is the wealthiest nation on planet Earth, and it is also the nation with the most psychologists and psychotherapists in the world. If money made people happy, then how can Americans be so unhappy? And if America, or if money could make Canada happy, then why is Canada so miserable? More money is not what we need. Just ask anyone who has more money. The problem is deeper. The problem is that we are made to know and love God, but we rebel against him and we worship ourselves and we worship other created things. And so if this is making you just slightly uncomfortable... Here's the good news. God is mercifully trying to bring you to the place, bring bring us to the place where we understand that our sin separates us from him 
And that Jesus' death paid for the penalty of sin. And that means that everyone who trusts in Jesus can be reconciled to God. So my question is, what keeps you, what keeps me, what keeps us from trusting Jesus right now? You don't need a bigger bank account or a newer car or a bigger home or better groceries. What we need is Jesus And I love it. In verse 18, Jesus says, I counsel you. I counsel you. You see, a dynamic Jesus makes a decisive offer. I counsel you. Come, buy from me. Buy from me. It's emphatic. You who were rich with gold, told to buy gold from Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7 says that the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes or tarnishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Jesus tells the Laodiceans, Calvary Baptist, he's telling us that the cushy life is not the Christian life. And next, he gives them advice. Watch the contrast. He says, buy white raiment that you might be clothed. Now, don't, don't, don't lose the irony. This is a city known for its bright, glossy, black wool. This was the town, the city that hosted the fashion shows. They were the cutting edge. This is where all the designers lived. And he says, no, no, why don't you buy some pure white clothes from me? Being naked in Scripture always speaks of judgment and shame. Isaiah the prophet was told to walk around Israel for three years naked. And yet everywhere in Revelation, white robes speaks of blessing of God's people. Then he tells them to anoint their eyes. He says, put the salve on your eyes. What do you think that is? Very simply, it's the word of God and prayer. It's the word of God in prayer. Allow the Holy Spirit to be the one who pulls back the cataracts of sin. My mom and dad called me with this week. My mom is, is going to have cataract surgery and hip replacement surgery just days apart. And I asked mom about having her cataract surgery. And mom said to me, she said, Stephen, I cannot wait to be able to see clearly again. This is what Bible reading does. Bible reading helps you and I see clearly. Sin is like cataracts on our eyes. So he says, I counsel you, buy from me. But then the most incredible three words to the city that we we often write off the most in Revelation 2 and 3. Look at what he says. He says, I love you. I love you. Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 3, Be zealous, therefore, and repent. He told his son, David, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. Now let me say this, and I want you all to listen up. Listen up very carefully right now, every one of you. The difference between the expelled and the disciplined lies in the response. The difference 
between those that are rejected by God and those who are loved and disciplined by him lies in the response. In chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus explains what's been driving him in everything he has said, the confrontational things, the encouraging things. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So what? Be zealous and repent. Calvary, listen, Jesus loves you enough to want you to be righteous. He loves you enough to confront your unrighteousness. He loves you enough to inspire the Bible. He loves you enough to call you to zealous repentance. Let me say it today as we start our Christmas season. If Jesus did not call people to repentance, he would be sending them a different message. And do you know what that message would be? Go to hell. But because he loves us, he calls us to repentance. The believers in the church in Laodicea are self-reliant. They're delusioned. And Jesus rebukes them and he says, stop being lukewarm. Stop playing church. Stop playing at this and calls them to zeal. I want to have fellowship with you is what he says in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus is asking the very church he died for to allow him back in for intimate fellowship. Jesus is offering true happiness, conversation, companionship, relational intimacy. I have to unpack this because, again, I I reference James Hamilton. Verse 20, I think he says, the evangelistic use of the verse matches the spirit of the verse, but I do not think the evangelistic use of the verse fits the meaning of the verse. Because everybody loves, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And then we have altar calls and we say, if you will just open the door to your heart and Jesus will then come in. And I know how warm that feels and how sappy that is and how completely wrong in the passage it fits. Presumably, Hamilton says, believers have already opened the door of their hearts to Jesus. So I doubt that as Jesus says the words of chapter 3, verse 20, that he's inviting them to believe in him. So there's a stark difference. If you remember at the beginning, remember I told you that Roman soldiers were billeted in Laodicea. That is, residents of Laodicea were forced to allow Roman soldiers to stay in their homes. So as the Laodiceans were forced to feed and provide for these Roman soldiers, now Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if you will let me in, I will come into you and I will eat with you and you with me. See the contrast? The Roman soldiers forcing the Laodiceans to house them and feed them. The Romans forcing their way in to take food. And Jesus says, no, I simply knock. I wait to be invited in and and then I'll provide the meal. Isn't that so much more beautiful for the Christian? The sovereign Jesus whose will is sovereign and what he wills comes to pass and he's absolutely compelling and so if he wants in he can get in nevertheless people who welcome Jesus into their lives be it a church or an individual coming to faith makes a real difference there's tension here between divine sovereignty and human responsibility 
Do you want true happiness? I hear this talk all the time. Half of my work week is almost taken up in counseling. And I almost hear it every single time. Pastor, I want to be happy. Pastor, I want my kids to be happy. Pastor, I want the church to be happy. I want my marriage to be happy. Okay, then invite Jesus in. Let the Word of God take the cataracts of sin and selfishness off your eyes. Job 5 says, Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects, so don't despise the correction of the Almighty. When the king, queen of Sheba went and visited Solomon and she saw his kingdom and all of his riches and all of his glory, this is what she focused in though. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants. Why? Because they stand continuously before you and hear your wisdom. <laughs> Blessed be the Lord your God which delights in you to set you on the throne of Israel. David said in Psalm 144, happy is the people that in such a case, yes, happy is the people whose God is the Lord. And so he says, let me come into you. And notice in verse 21 and 22, as we close, he gives us delightful promises. He gives us a delightful promise. He says, if you will invite me in, You'll be victorious and you'll sit with me on my throne just as I am victorious and sit on my Father's throne. You know what he's really saying? Is everything that you have seen happen to me will happen to you. You don't live with a separate set of promises. That's why back in the Gospel of John, when Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Have you thought about what the promises are in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 to Christians? Here they are. If you and I will trust Jesus, commune with Jesus, in chapter 2 verse 7 we will eat from the tree of life. In chapter 2 verse 10 we'll receive the crown of life. In chapter 2, verse 11, we'll be protected from the second death. Do you know what that means? That the worst you and I ever have to face is physical death. We will never die spiritually. We will never go to hell. Heaven is our home. Jesus is our Savior. God is our Father. In chapter 2, verse 17, we are given hidden manna. That's the Word of God. In chapter 2, verse 26, we're going to rule over the nations. In chapter 2, verse 28, we'll receive the morning star. In chapter 3, verse 5, we'll be clothed in white garments. We will have our name written in the book of life. We will confess Jesus Christ in heaven. We'll be a part of the worship service of chapter 4 and 5. In chapter 3, verse 12, we will be a pillar in God's temple. I am fascinated. Every one of these stained glass windows, if you look, there's a plaque at the base of every one, which is how and why that particular stained glass window was donated on behalf of someone. What this is saying is one day, you and I will be commemorated in the temple of Almighty God with our names on pillars that no one can take away. Praise God, somebody said amen. 
In chapter 3, verse 12, we'll be identified with God's name. In chapter 3, verse 12, we'll be identified with the new Jerusalem. We will be given Christ's name. And then in our passage, we will have the right, the privilege to sit with Christ on his throne forever. So Calvary Baptist, let me ask you, do you understand what Christ has done for you? Are you focusing more on religious trends and theories than on the Word of God? Are you more focused on being religiously neutral and accommodating than being committed to the fundamentals of the faith? Are we more focused on self-sufficiency than on God-dependency? Are we more focused on money than we are on Scripture? Are we more focused on fashions than on holy living? Are we more focused on understanding the world than we are on understanding God? Are we more focused on contemporary relevance than on spiritual repentance? Are we more focused on the presence of civic and religious dignitaries than on the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ himself? Let me finish with this one illustration that I hope drives the point home for us all as we kick off Christmas. On February the 15th of 1921 in New York City, the operating room of the Kane Summit Hospital, the doctor is performing an appendectomy. In many ways, the events leading to the surgery are uneventful. The patient has complained of severe abdominal pain and the diagnosis is clear, an inflamed appendix. And Dr. Evan O'Neill Kane is performing the surgery. In his distinguished 37-year medical career, he has performed nearly 4,000 appendectomies. So this surgery will be uneventful in all ways except two. The first is the novelty of this operation because the use of local anesthesia in major surgery, Dr. Kane is a crusader against the hazards of general anesthesia. He contends that a local application is far safer and many of his colleagues agree with him in principle, but in order for them to agree in practice, they'll have to see the theory applied. So Dr. Kane searches for a volunteer a patient who is willing to undergo surgery while under only local anesthesia. A volunteer is not easily found. Many are squeamish at the thought of being awake during their own surgery. Others are fearful that the anesthesia will wear off too soon, but eventually Dr. Kane finds a candidate. And on Tuesday morning, February the 15th, the historic operation occurs. The patient is prepped, wheeled into the operating room. The local anesthetic is applied as he has done thousands of times. Dr. Kane dissects the superficial tissue, locates the the appendix, and he skillfully excises it and concludes the surgery. To everyone's amazement during the procedure, the patient complains only of minor discomfort. The volunteer is taken into post-op, then placed into a hospital ward. He recovers quickly and is dismissed two days later. We're talking about the 1920s. 
Dr. Kane has proven his theory. And thanks to the willingness of a brave volunteer, Kane demonstrated that local anesthetic was a viable and even preferable alternative. But if you remember, I said there were two novelties about this operation. One was local anesthetic. The second is the patient. Because the patient of the surgery for Dr. Kane was Dr. Kane. To prove his point, Dr. Kane operated on himself. A wise move. The doctor became a patient in order to convince the patients to trust the doctor. This is what Jesus is saying to the church of Laodicea. Stop trusting yourselves. I am God who has come in the flesh and I will bear the penalty and the pain of sin for you. So you no longer have to be self-deluded or self-sufficient. Are you and I committed Christians? Wholeheartedly do we refresh and heal those around us both inside and outside the church because Jesus is not a cliche. He is the spiritual doctor of humanity. He told the Pharisees, I didn't come to heal well people. I came to heal those who were sick. So you have been healed from your spiritual cancer if you trust him. But anybody who's had cancer knows there are offering lingering things and you constantly have to go back to the doctor and have checkups and have things done so you will stay healthy. Calvary Baptist, as we enter Christmas of 2022, as we have this beautiful building to rejoice and be a part of as we seek to keep renovating it and all these things, but may we never be self-sufficient. May we never be self-delusional. And if you were here this morning and you have not known Jesus as your spiritual healer, come and meet him. And Christian, if you're here trusting money, Trusting the culture, trusting your past, trusting your list of good works. Are we guilty of being naked and thinking we look good? Maybe this Christmas, we need to get back to the basics. Just as I am without one plea, but that my blood was shed for thee. Just as I am, I come. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, as we finish looking at these seven churches of yours, each an expression of your bride, the church, whether it was the self-righteousness of Ephesus or the self-delusion of Laodicea, whether it was the call to trust you to Smyrna or the open door of missions to Philadelphia, whether it was Pergamus that was flirting with compromise, Thyatira that was in the throes of compromise, or Sardis that was dead in compromise. Lord, what you said to Laodicea, you say to Calvary Baptist and Downtown Community Church and Kilbride Community Church and Northern Cross Community Church, you say it to every church that is open and active in this city right now today. I counsel you. Trust me, buy from me. I love you and I love you enough 
So, oh God, would you heal bitter hearts and broken spirits? Would you give courageousness to hurt and searching sinners? Would you give a welcome shock to the soul of self-righteous and self-sufficient professing Christians? And may we know the joy this Christmas of peace with God and the peace of God. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. God bless you, everybody.